You're listening to the You Mentor Talk Show, where in, we invite a panel of experts each week to speak about the incredible journeys and career paths. Today, we're talking to Salma Jaffer and Samir Latha Dinani. Salma is an elementary school teacher in the Delta School District who helps third and fourth graders bring their learning to life. Samir is an attorney and associate director of the bioethics program at Columbia University, where he addresses the ethical, legal, and social implications of biotechnology and medicine. This week's show is brought to you by Project Visual. I'm Jawad Sharif, your guest talk show host. Make sure to tune in every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And remember, if you have any questions for our panelists, you may leave them in the comments section of, of our YouTube channel. Salam alaikum, Salma. How are you today? Alaikum salam. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, so, Salma, you are a third and fourth grade teacher, and um, uh, when we discussed about a career earlier, it sounded pretty interesting. So, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Um, so, yeah, like you said, I teach third and fourth grade, um, and I'm an elementary school teacher. So, pretty much um, the kids come to school, and I'm with them um, the whole day, and I teach everything from language arts to math to science, social studies, and uh, PE. So I, I like to say I do it all. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds very uh, um, intense. Uh, I definitely have busy days, that's for sure. <laughs> As you know, kids have a lot of needs. So of course, I'm uh, doing all the academic stuff, but there's also all the social emotional needs kids have as well as uh, physical needs so um, it can be it can be busy but I love it I'm sure I'm sure so um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today sure um, so uh, my parents uh, moved to Canada in the 70s and um, my parents came from East Africa and their whole reason for coming to Canada was um, they valued education and they just felt like if they came to Canada that's what they could give to um, myself and my brother and um, and I think that just really instilled um, this love of learning and uh, lifelong learning if you will and so that's really what I I live by I try and um, learn something new every day um, so when I was in um, university I uh, my passion was for reading so I majored in English and the other passion I had was people I just find people really fascinating so my minor was in psychology and um, I find every every province and every state um, has different requirements for teaching. But for me and BC, it was a four-year degree plus a one-year teaching program on top of it. So right. once I finished university, then I started teaching. Oh, that sounds exciting. Um, so you're a third and fourth grade teacher now. Um, have you tried teaching other levels and other subjects? Yeah, so my my um, area of er, um, expertise, I guess you could say, is kindergarten to grade seven. So I've pretty much taught everything from kindergarten to grade seven. I taught kindergarten for several years, which was uh, really interesting. The little ones, um, they learn in different ways. So it was a lot of play-based learning, um, but it was a lot of getting used to school. So I had to do things that I wasn't really necessarily prepared for in when I did my degree. Um, but it was still 
great nonetheless. I did a lot of um, learning. I did a lot of teaching for special needs kids. So I worked with kids who are autistic or had any um, learning disabilities. So I did some work there as well. And then uh, I now landed into this grade three, four position. I've been doing that for about five years. Nice. And um, so is there a difference um, in your teaching styles from grade to grade? Oh, 100%. Um, <laughs> like I said, with the kindergartens, um, I had to worry about things like um, making sure that kids knew to raise their hand or making sure that when they asked to the go to the bathroom, I let them go because they probably had to go if I wanted to not have any accidents in the classroom. Um, right. But uh, with the grade sevens, of course, they are, they're obviously past all that and there and then you're able to you see little um little adults emerging so you can take the learning to the next level and um you're also you're also kind of um having them take in information but also learning how to interpret it um how to think about it how to problem solve um how to be creative in their thinking so i think it does evolve the reason i love grade three four and and this is probably my favorite grade is because um first of all they love school they love coming to school they love me it's really a, um, easy to build connections with them and i find that they are past kind of that uh, learning how to read and write stage, but they're at this really pivotal point where they are becoming versions of their adult self. And, um, and I can kind of help influence that. And, and I see all these little sparks of, of um, coolness that are, that are starting to emerge. And, and I can really, um, uh, really, in, you know, engage with that. So I really, I really like this grade the best. I say this is my favorite. So everybody should take third and fourth grade, right? <laughs> well, everybody has a strength for a particular grade. This is a good fit for me. <laughs> right. Okay. All right. That sounds exciting. So um, in terms of your education getting to this point, um, are there any specific courses or requirements that you think really help you uh, excel as a teacher at this level? Yeah. Um, so again, I think uh, when you're going into teaching, again, the requirements are really different. Um, I've traveled a lot in, in North America and I've found that the requirements um, among the different states and as well as among the different provinces are different. I think BC has the um, most um, stringent um, criteria. So I found a lot of teachers that are coming to BC had to get extra coursework to make sure that they could get certified in BC. Whereas if you were going from BC to Ontario, for example, it was a bit easier. But um, among the states, it's it's very different from state to state. So um, I know for some teachers that was a bit frustrating because they needed to know the criteria if they were you know, thinking about moving, for example. So for me, it was a four-year degree um, in anything. And I, like I said, I majored in English and psychology. And then it was the teaching program on top of that. And the, the teaching program has a lot of diversity amongst what you can choose. But um, for me, it was it was great to learn a lot about um, multicultural education. And I, I tried to do a bit in technology too, because I thought that was something kind of up and coming, but still working on that, as you can see from the amount of time it took me to log on today. <laughs> All right, that was a very short time. <laughs> yeah. So um, you also mentioned um, in your profile that you're uh, going for a master's um, in educational leadership, correct? Yeah. 
Okay. Well, how is that different from what you're doing now? Yeah. So, um, so currently I just have a, a regular bachelor's degree. Um, I have a bachelor's of arts and a bachelor's of education. And um, uh, I think a lot of teachers do find at some point that they're ready to move on and, and get more. And it differs, uh, it's different from person to person. Some people finish their, their bachelor's and they're ready to do their master's right away. Um, but some people want to get some time working for a little bit. And that was the case for me. Um, and then they're ready to do their master's um, later on in their career, which is, that's what I'm going to be doing now. Um, and there's different types of masters you can do out there. Um, some focus on literacy, um, some are technology based. And the one that I've kind of think is a good fit for me is one that's based on leadership. And, um, and um, yeah, and, and so it'll, it, it allows me to, if I would like to be a principal or, or a vice principal, or get some sort of leadership role in my, my district, it allows me to do that. Um, if I wanted to teach in a college or a university, it allows me to go in that direction. So I think for me, that's a good fit. And and is that um, so? You haven't really decided what you're going to do once you get a degree, or you already have an idea of what you want to do. You know, I'm still a little undecided. I'm hoping that that path presents itself as I start doing it more. Um, I I I would like I I've done some work with adults um, through the madrasa. Uh, I was I work at our local madrasa here. I, I mentor um, teachers at. In, this, um, in the Vancouver Madrasa, but I also have done some work with um, Madrasa teachers around North America, and I really did like working with adults. Um, I never, I never thought I would like that, but I just at this opportunity presented itself, and and I took it, and I and I really enjoyed it. So I I do see myself working perhaps in a university or college. So I haven't ruled that out, but um, but I do love being with the kids. So I haven't quite decided yet. So we'll see. Right, and you mentioned you uh, work with Madrasa teachers uh, as part as part of an Asimco program. Um, how is it similar uh, to working with kids? Oh, um, <laughs> well, uh, with kids, you kind of have to corral them in a certain direction when you want to move forward. Um, adults are no different. They love to take a long break and like to hang out by the chai table. Um, <laughs> and so um, so it's it's uh, in those ways very similar, um, you know, but of course, adults are so different because um, you can take things deeper. And I feel like Madrasa Teachers was a, a really neat experience because I got to influence um, their how they influenced their classes. And, I, and it was in such a wider scope. And um, that was really neat for me to see uh, that I could have that impact. I never really thought uh, as a teacher that that would be a role for me, but it was something that myself and another teacher that I know from the mosque, we were both you know, talking about madrasa and we were saying, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could take what we know about schools and what we know about madrasas and bring them together and bridge the gap a little bit? And that's what we tried to do. So we started that in the Vancouver madrasa and then it kind of took off and we were able to work with other teachers in North America as well. That sounds pretty cool. Um, so earlier you mentioned something about uh, when you're trying to teach kids, uh, you have to really engage them. Yeah. Um, and there was something you mentioned earlier that really, uh, I guess, um, really struck me. Um, and it was bringing the learning to life. Um, so how do you do that? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely at the core of my philosophy. I feel like, um, you know, nowadays ed information is so readily available. Uh, you know, 
everybody has information in their back pockets and their phones. So if they really wanted to know something, they could just Google it, for example, you know. Um, and in the past, that's what teachers were. They were the givers of information. And now the role of the teacher has really evolved into something that is uh, different. It's it's now you, you're not necessarily giving information. You're giving kids the tools to take information and um, apply it or think about it or, you know, bring it to life. And so that's really at the core of what I like to do in my classroom. So whenever I can, I try to make things more meaningful for by, um, you know, having some real life examples. So one one thing I did um, last year was we were doing a science unit and we were talking about um, the life cycle. And we did the typical, you know, worksheets and we did a little bit videos and stuff like that. We did, you know, the typical stuff. But I knew somebody who had a farm and he had eggs. And so I talked to him and I said, hey, could you do this program in my classroom? And, and it was the first time he had ever done it too. But he had an incubator. He brought fertilized eggs in and he taught the kids about what what the different stages were for the eggs. And um, and we were able to bring them into the classroom and the kids were turning the eggs. Um, one really cool activity we did often was we would candle the eggs or we would turn off all the lights and hold a flashlight to the eggs. And so the kids could see inside the eggs what stage the embryo was at and um, the uh, the different parts of the embryo. So And that was amazing for the kids um and then um of course when the fertilization stage was over and um they were ready to hatch uh one of the one one of the the stages where one of the eggs will one of the chicks on side will will start to pip which is make a small hole and after that it's about a 24 hour cycle that you have to wait but we weren't sure when it was going to happen. So I had some kids set up on egg patrol and their job was to just sit at the back table and watch the eggs. And if they thought there was some action at the eggs, they would call us over and we would watch. And sure enough, that day we had one of the eggs hatch and this little chick was, you know, coming to life right before their eyes. And for me, it was a real pivotal moment in my career because I've never seen such awe in kids and they just all of a sudden everything clicked and it was really exciting and engaging and um, and they loved it and they still talk about it even the kids I don't if I don't teach them anymore they still come talk to me about it. remember that day we had the eggs hatch they named the egg Her the chick Her Hercules because it was so just such a strong chick that happened to hatch so quickly and they loved it um, and yeah it was such an exciting moment so I, I try and do things like that whenever I can I take them out of the building whenever I possibly can. Uh, we will go for a walk, a nature walk. If we're talking, if we're doing writing, we'll try and do our writing outside. If we're doing art, we'll try and do it outside. We have a garden in our school, so I try and make use of that. So yeah, I think that's probably the things that I'd like to do in the classroom to kind of bring it to life. Right, so it's really important not just to teach them, but to really show them, right? Yeah, ab absolutely. And let them experience it. I think things become more meaningful when you experience it. So what's a typical day like in, in your role? Um, so I usually um, uh, get to work around um, eight-ish and, uh, and and the school starts around 8.40. I try to try to be as prepared as I possibly can. I think by nature, I'm not super organized, but as I've become a teacher, I've realized how important it is to be organized. So that's something that I worked on for myself. Um, so I, I think things have to be kind of organized and set into place. I have to think about what I want, what my goal is for the kids. Um, otherwise, 
things can get chaotic. And um, they come to school around 840. And then we start on our day and, and our day looks different every single day. So we might be doing, um, you know, language arts, we might be doing language arts is pretty much reading, writing or oral language or speeches. Right. Um, we might be doing math, we might be doing science that day. So every day looks a little bit different, which is actually one of the things that I love about my job. No day looks the same. Um, and then, and then we, uh, the, the school structure, as you know, can kind of be very, uh, systematic. We have recess at 1030, we have lunch at 12 o'clock and then the day's over at three, but my day doesn't usually end at three. I'm usually there after school, you know, either, um, collaborating with other teachers or preparing things for the next day or meeting with my principal, vice principal about other things as well. So yeah, I guess that's about it. Right, so uh, so teaching is not just a job, it's actually your life too. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, it is in some ways. I, I think my philosophy of always learning is definitely part of my life, but I have to make sure that I have that balance because um, it can take over my life, and but I don't want it to because I need to have that balance as well. So I have a lot of other things that I do with my family and my friends, and I have to make sure that I make time for those as well. Okay, and um, have you ever had like, a challenge that really, I, I guess, made you really think about what you're doing or transform your career in any way? Yeah, um, I was, uh, I mean, there's always moments, actually. Um, teaching can be really challenging. And depending on the country that you're teaching in, or the state or the province that you're teaching in, funding is different. So sometimes our education system isn't funded as well as it is in other countries, um, which can be frustrating. But um, that being said, all the pros that I see outweigh all of that. And so seeing those little sparks definitely um, makes it where I want to be. Um, but I do remember this one student who was really a challenge. Um, and he really challenged me because I didn't know where to go with him. Uh, he was a really difficult behavior wise and academic wise. Uh, he was, you know, hiding under the tables, he was aggressive, and I didn't really know what to do, and I was getting frustrated. He made it difficult for me to want to come to school, and I know he was making it difficult for a lot of the other kids too. So in that case, I you know, I was kind of at a very low point, and it was when my principal noticed that things were not going well, and I talked to her about it, and that's when I realized that the great thing about teaching is that not only do you have this community within your classroom, but you have this community amongst the staff members and even amongst your district, if you choose to make the most of it. So um, I had this great community in my in my school and they, they realized that what I was struggling with and it was great that I was able to reach out to them and reach out to the other professionals in the building, the counselor, the, psycho the psychologist, and we were able to come together and find a plan for this little boy and support him in the in the way that he needed. So I would say that would probably be my most challenging uh, event, but but the way that I solved it was just to reach out to all these other great people in the in the building that I knew could support me. So. Okay, so so you went from being, uh, I guess, fighting out on on your own, and then you realize you're actually a community that everybody's willing to pitch in and help out. Absolutely, yeah, and I think having that collaborative approach, definitely within the classroom, and then even just amongst your staff, is just such a strength. And if you can promote it in with, amongst yourself and with other people, I think it's really a, a great thing to have. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening live to the Umento Talk Show, where we're set chatting with Selma Jaffer on her role as an elementary school teacher. Coming up in the next half hour, we have Samir Lazadinani, who is an associate director of the bioethics program at Columbia University. So I have to change up the, uh, I guess, the gears a little bit, Selma. Um, so if I'm a high school student or a university student, how do I get into the teaching profession? Um, so first of all, I would definitely say that you um, find out if it's a good fit for yourself. So um, volunteer in your local madrasa or volunteer in your local school. Um, and I did both, and um, it was it was great for me to see to to ensure that that was a good fit for me. So um, so make sure that you are doing that and making sure that you are um, that you are. Uh, finding out if that's a good fit. So that would be number one. And then find out what your requirements are um, by going to the counselors at your university They will, or at the college. They'll tell you if, if that's what you need to do, what, what path you need to take. Um, like I said, it's different from province to province and from state to state. So find out for your area. And if you see yourself moving somewhere in the next little bit, find out from them as well. So, um, so for me, it was a four-year degree and then a one-year teaching program. And um, if you go back to your high school and college days, is there one thing you wish somebody had told you about your profession uh, that you'd wish you had known earlier? Um, I guess I one thing that I really, uh, yeah, I guess it's to be adaptable and be flexible. Um, I think adaptability is probably the best skill you can have in this job because like I said, no two days are the same and no two kids are the same. So because you're working with children and people, uh, it's important to be flexible and adaptable to the situation and and kind of not let it um, get you down if things are if not going your way or the way you had planned. Some of my best lessons have started from something I was uh, unexpecting, you know, I, it was unexpected and and I was like, oh, okay, well, let's go with this. And all of a sudden it turns into this really engaging and deep learning moment. So um, I think, yeah, adaptability is probably the best thing you can have for yourself. That sounds like valuable advice. Uh, so for those uh, people who are going to the profession, um, uh, besides adaptability, is there are there any other pieces of advice you can give them uh, to sort of propel them forward in the careers? Because uh, from what I hear, uh, teaching is not like a, I guess a, a st static kind of uh, profession. It's always changing. Yeah, and I guess the other piece I would say is just never stop learning. I definitely read read as many books as you can. Um, take courses, learn from other people. Um, you know, I think I think the best teachers that I've seen are ones that never stop learning themselves because um, kids change, technology changes, our world changes. So if we are going to be um, given the opportunity to influence kids, then we have to be able to to um, meet their needs, you know, and, and like I said, those are always changing, right? So like right now in the classroom, I'm teaching coding. I never would have expected to be teaching coding in the classroom. Right, but, especially the third and fourth grade level. Yeah, but I am, and and it's awesome. And the, and and um, it's definitely not my strength, but, uh, but I'm just, 
bringing the tools into the classroom. We have robots in our school. So I've brought them into the classroom and I've given the kids the opportunity and I've given them skills, problem solving skills, critical thinking skills. And then they kind of take it over and they're doing amazing at it. They're taking the lead and coming to me when they need help and I can help them with that. But I'm just kind of setting the stage for their learning, you know? So um, that's what I mean when I say, I feel like the role of that teacher has changed a little bit. Right. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, we do things like that in the classroom, which I wasn't expecting to teach when I first started. So. Right, right. Um, and do you ever feel like uh, the some parents who uh, I guess expect you to babysit the kids too? Because I've 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 heard a lot of feedback from different people saying um, teachers should teach and parents should uh, I guess babysit. Do you ever feel like you have to also uh, watch out for the kids um, in terms of the behavior and so on? Yeah, and you know every. Uh, every family is different. And I think when we go into education, or if you go into anything without any judgment, I think people move forward much more quickly. And, and I think whenever I come into any of my classes, I really make it very clear that we're all part of a team, you know, myself, the student and the parent. And if one of us is not doing our best, then then that child is not going to be moving forward. And because I think I come in with that approach, um, parents really appreciate that and they know that and, and they know I leave the leave the lines of communication open and it's an open door policy in my classroom parents can come in anytime and talk to me about what they need um, but that being said like I said it's it's a team so I make it really clear that this is what I'm going to be doing and this is what you're you know, your child needs to be doing, and this is what you need to be doing to support them. So I think if our expectations of one another are all really clear, um, we all rise to them. And then in the end, we end up influencing um, really these kids who are going to be taking on the leadership roles in the future. Right. So education starts young. The, the future leaders, I, I guess, are sort of bred at a very early stage. Oh, absolutely. And I and I often say to, I had this one student who was an amazing artist, I said to her, and she struggled in school. And I said to her, one day, you're going to have this fantastic art show. And you're going to invite me, because I, I, rem I remembered you in grade three. And I can't wait to see that day. And, and I hope she does have that art show, because I can't wait to go to her art show, you know, that sounds pretty exciting. Um, so one more question for you. Um, how has Islam helped you on your uh, path to your on your professional path? Yeah, I think it's played a huge role. I mean, of course, it's who I am. So uh, I guess I get to I get to bring in um, my religion and my faith into the classroom, and I get to I get to influence kids who probably possibly have never had a positive role model who's of our faith. So um, uh, when I graduated, it was um, when 9-11 happened. And it was when I was starting my student teaching. And that was actually the first time that I, I realized the impression that I was able to make on kids because of my faith. Because in the news, in the media, Islam was having such a negative impact um, on, you know, who, what people thought Muslims were. And all of a sudden they came to school and they saw me as their student teacher. And I thought, wow, I can really impact these kids and I can show them what a true Muslim really is. So, um, so I think it's been, I've been able to mold, um, 
are the impression that people have of Muslims in a positive way, um, just by being who I am. And and um, and I think that's the best thing that I can I can do is I can just present Muslims and in a positive way. And, and I think that's a great example uh, to be a teacher um, in that position. Uh, so thank you so much, Salma. Um, it was a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for uh, having me. I really enjoyed having this conversation. Same here. I'm, I'm glad we got to learn a lot more about what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, for our audience members, if you have any questions for Salma, please leave them in the comments section of the YouTube channel, and we'll try to get them to the end of the show. Our next panelist is Samir Lada Dinani, who is an associate uh, director of the bioethics program at Columbia University. Salam alaikum, Samir. Are you there? Uh, yes, salam alaikum, uh, Joad. Uh, I'm here. Um, thank, thanks, thanks so much for the opportunity, and uh, thank you, Sister Salma, as well, for that uh, very uh, thoughtful and informative informative discussion. Thanks. Uh, 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 so, Samir. Um, you are an attorney by profession, and you also uh, currently serve as the social director of the Bioethics Program at Columbia University. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what it is that you do and how you got to where you are? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I kind of got to where I am in a bit of a circular kind of way. Um, uh, I, uh, as you mentioned, am an attorney by profession. Um, and uh, after law school, I actually um, had the opportunity to work a little bit at the UN for a bit, um, which I had a wonderful experience. Um, and then subsequently, I uh, joined a corporate law firm, um, and I was in uh, um, uh, the corporate law area in uh, project finance, mergers and acquisitions, um, and, and other areas. Um, I've always had an interest in kind of transitioning um, into more policy um, and academic work um, as well. Um, and uh, so after working at the corporate uh, law firm for a few years, um, I decided to pursue a master's in bioethics um, and uh, subsequently, um, uh, you know, took on um, uh, greater involvement in the field. Um, so bioethics is, uh, is, uh, is an interesting area. Um, a lot of people may not have heard of it, but, uh, you know, it touches us um, in our daily lives in so many different ways. Um, and it deals with um, issues concerning the ethical, legal and social um, implications of advances that we're seeing in uh, in medicine um, and biotechnology, and these advancements are increasingly um, arising. I think, especially in light of um, our advancements in technology and um, medical kind of abilities. Um, so the topics involve uh, typically critical dilemmas that intersect um, different areas, um, including law, society, culture, public policy, philosophy, religion, economics. Um, I would say even history. Um, and so it touches it touches all these different areas and how do we kind of um you know go forward right how do we create policies how do we create laws how do we create um uh, approaches to these very critical issues um and how as a society do we respond to them so these issues you know they can they can range from issues of um, genetic enhancement genetic modification um i like to see it as kind of discussions that largely focus on kind of the two endpoints of life when do we begin and when do we end? How do we begin and how do we end? And right. typically, I think that really um, highlights critical inflection points in our life. Where do we make decisions? How do we decide? And what does that say um, about us as a society 
um, in a kind of, you know, grander, grander kind of scale. So those are kind of issues that deal with the two endpoints of life, but it deals with everything in between as well. I think one of the questions we have, or one of the areas that recently is developing is also of epigenetics, uh, where we're learning more about how our genetics may not really be defining who we are, how influences in the environment actually shape our genes or can, can have impacts on our genetic component, genetic makeup. Uh, issues of uh, drugs um, in the pharmaceutical industry, are we over-medicating children? Are we an over-medicated society? Uh, how do we respond to that? Who is benefiting off of that? And uh, as well as issues of clinical trials and how do we kind of undertake those? At the, at the later end point in life, you know, around death, end of life matters, we have the ability to kind of uh, extend life uh, beyond what we could have ever imagined. Uh, we have heroic medical measures. But should we always be employing those? Should we always be doing that? And so in kind of approaching these very challenging questions that affect all of us, there are certain kind of frameworks that we use uh, to, re to come to kind of the most reasoned um, uh, ethical solutions, right? What's morally the right thing to do in these situations? Uh, and in that, in that respect, we look at um, issues of autonomy, of beneficence, of non-maleficence and justice. So those are kind of the four overarching principles and they're, they, they're, they're largely uh, found in medical ethics. So with autonomy, we look at kind of respecting the rights of the individual, letting the individuals make their own choices. Um, with beneficence, we look at doing good. What is in the patient's best interest, for example? In non-maleficence, uh, there's this notion of avoiding harm. We don't wanna cause any type of harm. And justice, justice is what is accessible, um, especially when it comes to um, vulnerable kind of populations. And so just, just quickly uh, kind of tying up this, this portion, I would give a few examples. With autonomy, I would say, you know, there are questions about, let's say there's an instance where there's a sister, a brother is in need of a kidney, for example, for whom a sister is a match. Um, if she decides not to give the kidney, that is obviously her own choice. Should she decide not to give the kidney, what are kind of the repercussions, what are the issues? Oftentimes autonomy is not just an individual's kind of decision to make a decision, um, but uh, uh, also their kind of larger familial or maybe communal autonomy. So I'm from a South Asian background, you know, we have traditionally, you know, this idea of um, deferring oftentimes um, to elders, our parents, things like that. And so there's a larger sense of autonomy. It's just my, it's not just about me making a decision for myself, but taking into account um, other people's um, considerations and thoughts as well. And when we look at beneficence, oftentimes we also have to look at benefits to whom? Is it just to a person? Is it to the patient? Could it be, in a, for example, if there's a trial going on, a benefit to a future patient? If let's say the treatment is not gonna help the patient who's actually gonna be in a trial. Maybe they're doing it, you know, for a larger altruistic reasons. And, uh, and even when we look at non-maleficence, we try and do a risk-benefit analysis because when, when we do undergo any treatment, when we do undergo any kind of trials or research or anything like that, there are risks associated with that. So we always look at, well, will the benefits out, out, uh, outweigh the risks? So in, you know, if someone is going through chemotherapy, there's obviously going to be detriment, but are the benefits going to outweigh that and does it make sense in those kind of situations and finally and when we look at justice justice i think can be thought in different ways by different people so when i say justice it could mean something completely different from what you think is justice so there are particularly three kind of ways we can approach justice one maybe that everyone gets the same that there is kind of this rationing of resources and everyone is entitled to the same amount uh, no matter what their needs might be um, the, second, the second aspect or the second way of looking at justice and how do we approach justice 
um, in, in kind of creating policies and legislation and, and uh, laws, um, we can look at who needs more. And whoever needs more perhaps should get more. And I'm specifically kind of referencing in my mind here um, the healthcare debate uh, that is kind of raging in the United States right now. And I look to our um, benevolent neighbors uh, further up north, Canada, and other, other places where I think the approach to healthcare is a much more humane um, and, in my opinion, appropriate um, approach where there's a universal right to healthcare. Everyone gets it, and it's considered a right rather than a good. Uh, so this comes, uh, this is really kind of uh, point and center when we look at justice, right? Uh, how do we kind of view issues of justice and how do we frame them? And then obviously another way of looking at justice is those who contribute more get more. And that's kind of um, how our healthcare system works in the United States, that, you know, it's based on uh, who can contribute, who can pay for healthcare, and by and large, you know, they will be entitled to healthcare. Of course, there are caveats to that. People can go to the emergency room and get healthcare and all of that. But but by and large, these are kind of perspectives and viewpoints that govern how we how we um, create legislation, how we create policy, and how we view ourselves as human beings in a larger society as well. Yeah, that sounds very interesting. Um, so you sort of alluded to my next question, which is for the students who are going through the bioethics program, what kind of careers do they go on to pursue once they get the master's degree? I think that's a great question. And uh, bioethics in and of itself, um, people can go into research, they can go into, um, uh, they can become clinical ethicists, they can go into IRBs, which are institutional review boards that actually are responsible for governing um, issues surrounding human subject research. Um, they can go into research compliance. Um, in and of itself, there are a number of kind of areas. A lot of people will then pursue um, PhDs, uh, possibly go into teaching. Uh, there are other career paths as well um, in medicine, nursing, for example, in our program, um, it's a graduate program. We have about a third of our students are um, looking to go into either medicine or law. We also have a third that are already physicians or lawyers um, and are looking to kind of either pivot in their, in their careers or kind of enhance their careers in different ways. So as a field, there are many, because of the interdisciplinary nature of it, there are many, many different aspects and areas that uh, potential students could go into. So I would, I would say clinical ethics, research ethics, medicine, nursing, uh, public health, regulatory government work, uh, pharmaceutical industry, and even healthcare technology, which is becoming increasingly important, uh, especially in light of AI and big data and issues of uh, privacy and uh, artificial intelligence. Law is another area, obviously, journalism and publishing, academia teaching. And a lot of our students also are interested in the nonprofit and think tank, think tank sectors as well. That sounds very exciting. So it's a growing field then, right? Yeah, it's a, it's an, it's a growing field. And I think I would, I would argue that it's, it's, it's becoming increasingly more and more important um, in light of all of these different areas because it touches um, whatever profession a person is in. I think these issues of bioethics uh, are coming up and uh, are becoming increasingly important. So that's, uh, so what, I mean, that's what the current uh, program addresses. Now I would like you to take you, uh, take us a little bit back to back uh, when you were a high school student or a university student. Um, how did you decide to get involved in law in the first place? That's an interesting question. So I initially was thinking that I would want to go to medical school. And when I was a freshman in college, I took a course. Uh, it was my freshman semester, first semester as a freshman. And I took a course on the Supreme Court. It was a seminar. And it was about 20 students. And we had 
interestingly, we, we had about 10 TAs in the class. So we had, we had one TA teaching assistant per two students. The course met, um, it was a, it was called, it was a seminar course. It met on Monday evenings from 6 to 10 p.m. And it was a course on the Supreme Court and the religion clauses. Uh, it was by far the best course I've taken um, to date uh, as, as an, or took, took at that time and, and to date in my undergraduate career. Um, and it was very, very interesting because we went through Supreme Court legislation and uh, sorry, Supreme Court case law, um, looking at four or five cases in each session. And we'd have to draft a memo, like a five page memo each week on a specific case. And they were all religion and First Amendment cases. So that sparked my interest in the law. Uh, I saw it as, a, as, as an evolving and dynamic area where actually there's a lot of uh, contributions that I think we, we needed to uh, that we can make um, as Muslims and as, as, you know, as part of civic society as well. So I thought it was a very dynamic, interesting area, and that kind of sparked my interest in the field. Subsequently, I, um, I uh, had uh, gone to uh, a trip. I was in Europe with my brothers, a couple of my brothers, and uh, some of my cousins. And we had gone to Geneva, and we ended up at the United Nations there. And as I was sitting in the General Assembly, we were taking the tour, I thought, man, it would be so cool to, to kind of work in this environment. And it was just a fleeting thought, and I'm not even joking, but I came back from that trip, and a few weeks later, I was again in my undergraduate at the time, uh, there was an opportunity that someone, a friend of mine had heard of, and it was something atypical, where the, there was a, a role that had opened up, um, where it was an internship, and part of the internship included um, uh, attending UN sessions. And I said, that's great. So I applied for it. And, and fortunately, I was lucky enough to get it. And it was just kind of staggering in my mind that within just a couple of, within literally, I think it was about six weeks from, you know, going to the UN in Geneva, I suddenly had this opportunity that I had never could have ever imagined. So sometimes I think, I think uh, you know, where, where we, we end up sometimes, there are these like fortunate accidents that happen. And so that was one for me, I feel like. It was kind of a, a pivotal moment uh, for me. And uh, that experience, that internship at that time, which then, you know, later um, kind of further solidified my interest. That's pretty, pretty interesting. Um, so how did you, uh, I guess, get started in the law field? So in the in the law field, I had uh, I had worked. Um, I would say that my first experience in the law was uh, real experience was a job, a part time job that I had as a junior in college, and uh, that entailed literally. I was trying to figure out. I needed a job, a part time job, something you know, uh, something which you know I could use to bolster my resume or at least put down on my resume. I had uh, I'd looked at a bunch of job postings on the NYU. My, I, I did my undergraduate at NYU, so I had done. I'd looked at uh, the career services websites and and tried to get information on different kind of internships and jobs. Send out my resume. I hadn't heard anything back. I was kind of getting concerned. You know, a lot of my friends at that time had uh, had found part time jobs and things like that. So a buddy of mine, a, a good friend of mine from college, one day even he was having kind of struggling with finding the right internship. Uh, we just decided one afternoon that, you know what, we're just going to print off like a bunch of our resumes and just go around and just give them out. Uh, and he was also interested in, in, in kind of pursuing a career in law. So we printed off about 200. I remember I printed off about 200 resumes of mine and we just kind of pounded the pavement. Um, we went to the financial district downtown in Manhattan uh, and walked around, went into every single building that would let us in and uh, check their register, check their directory to see if there were any law firms there. 
And if we were allowed to, we'd go up there and just drop off a resume. We got yelled at, uh, you know, we kind of split up. He went in one part of this, the, you know, the, the one part of the city, I went in another, and then we kind of <laughs> rotated so that it wouldn't be both of us at the same time. But yeah. uh, we, we literally, I think I spent five hours that day, five or six hours going into random buildings and random kind of law firms and just dropping off a resume. And I, I got uh, more than a few uh, people um, who, who yelled at me and said that you can't be doing this. And, but, uh, you know, there were other places that took my resume that um, said we'll be in touch if anything opens up. And luckily, uh, the next week, I got a, I got a, a call back from one of the places. Um, it was an estates and trusts uh, legal practice, uh, a law firm um, in downtown. And uh, they were looking for someone uh, who might be inter- interested in, in a part-time position. And so I interviewed, and, and that was my first um, part-time experience. So I would, say, I would say just to kind of, you know, uh, one thing I'd like to highlight, I think, with respect to that is that sometimes it can be frustrating, right? When we're going through the natural channels or the channels that we're taught to go through, looking at job postings, looking online, you know, putting our resumes here and there, which everyone is doing. I think it's really important to sometimes try and approach it from a bit of an unconventional way. And, uh, you know, maybe what I did, you know, in this day and age, maybe it's not as easy to, to get access, you know, into these buildings and things like that. But at that time, that was one way. So I, I would recommend that for students, for people, for, for, you know, high school students, for college students that are interested in getting more experience, more things on their resume, everyone is going to be doing what, you know, kind of a baseline, right? Everyone's going to be sending in their resumes. Everyone's going to be uh, you know, getting maybe some advice, some feedback on resumes on how to kind of approach these things. One thing I would suggest is try and do something, think a little bit outside of the box, do something unconventional, because sometimes that may be a way that, that gives you a bit of a, an advantage. And I think that's really valuable advice that everybody who's really interested in a certain field needs to stand out. Yeah, okay. so I agree with you, yeah. Yeah. So um, what do you do uh, I guess, what's a typical day in your job right now? So it's interesting. And, and you know, just kind of reiterating what Sister Selma said, that there is really not like a typical day um, that I have. Uh, I'm obviously dealing uh, oftentimes with, with students and, uh, you know, courses and kind of, you know, the program aspect of it and developing it. And we also have um, some liaisons and, and, and uh, collaborations with uh, external um, organizations outside of Colombia, and so kind of managing those, um, dealing with those. There's a lot of meetings, um, and <laughs> there's never a dull day. There's always um, something that's that comes up. But I think I think the critical thing is that, you know, we have to uh, approach whatever whatever we do, right, with a sense of renewed beginning every day, because I think that keeps it um, fresh. I think it doesn't make it stale. I think it's very easy for us as human beings to fall into kind of a very routine, complacent pattern. Um, I, I know, I, I know, it's. I know, I feel that way oftentimes. But I think it's very important to remind ourselves. One, I think it's important to step back and think about kind of the, you know, where we are um, in 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 light of you know, you know, so many others, right? And uh, and kind of appreciate what we have and approach each day with that kind of appreciation. And again, that's difficult, I think, because we have, you know, stresses, we have uh, a lot of demand sometimes on us. But I think it's really important to take a few minutes in the morning and just kind of exhale and enjoy what's coming, despite how crazy it may get. So, Right, right. And um, do you ever have challenges with, say, your work-life balance um, in your uh, current role? 
I do. I mean, I I think I think it's um I wouldn't necessarily say it's challenges uh, or I, I I don't necessarily find it as challenging now as I did um, when I was at the corporate law firm. I, I think the demands um, in that area of the law are are are, are can be unreasonable sometimes. Uh, you're working many many more hours than you probably should be, and I think it impacts um, your life outside of work. I think work does you know, become largely your life, which is not a bad thing because I think when you're young, I think it's important to work hard um, and, and, and give it your all. And I think you should always kind of have, have that kind of approach to work uh, and kind of a work ethic that way. I think that, um, you know, things in this day and age, I, I, I believe that most people are probably um, have, have some level of flexibility in their work, but that also means that they're working at hours that they typically or traditionally may not have otherwise been working. So although, you know, we have these conveniences of, of uh, you know, having our emails on our phones and always being available, um, that gives us some level of flexibility, right? But it also um, in tandem requires us to perhaps work on the weekends or, you know, put in a few hours here and there in the evenings. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think that, you know, the, the, the nature of work is shifting as well. And uh, in that, I think it's important to try and find a balance that works, you know, for each person individually, because it can become more difficult if there's no kind of standard nine to five um, hours. Right, right. Um, speaking of challenges, is there any one uh, major challenge that you have experienced that was transformative in your uh, career? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think I think that challenges are something we experience every day, right? And I think they they shape us, they mold us, they 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 really kind of make us who we are uh, in a lot of in a lot of ways, right? The adversities we face and the difficulties we encounter, how we respond to them, really, they speak. They kind of are a measure of who we are at that time, and they also kind of help make us better, right? Um, so I think I think that being said, I think one of the biggest challenges I faced in my career is. Um, and I think lawyers oftentimes face this and right. it can be difficult because sometimes I think there are there are moments in our job um, in when you're at a law firm, for example, and you may be confronted with a, with an ethical dilemma that you don't feel comfortable um, and, uh, you, you know, in, in the approach, perhaps, um, that is being employed and uh, you're kind of stuck because you feel that maybe some of the work that you're doing may not be in line with your moral compass. And at that moment, I think it's really important to stop, right? I think it's really important to take, uh, to take stock. I think it's really important to realize that what our beliefs are, what, our, what, we, what, what we stand for, what we kind of value, what our moral kind of perspectives may be, and what our religion says about you know, these kind of dilemmas. Those should be our kind of guiding principles. And uh, oftentimes, I think it's very easy if we don't stop and take stock and think about that at that time, it's very easy to go down a slippery slope, right? And, and make concessions that we otherwise wouldn't make or feel comfortable making. Um, and, uh, and that can be problematic. So I think, I think what's really, really important is when we are confronted, and, and I'm speaking about, you know, as, as you know, someone in the legal field, um, when I've ex experienced challenges that maybe I found ethically challenging or morally kind of challenging for me, um, I've always tried to kind of stop and kind of just take stock of the situation. Not that, not that I've always been successful, but, but you know, I think it's important to, to do that. And, um, and if we do that, I think 
the, the, the right answer or the most appropriate answer is pretty apparent. Um, and at that point, I think it's important to kind of do what, you know, is in line with who you are and what your morality and what your religion tells you to do. Because I think ultimately, if we do that, even if in the moment or in that immediate aftermath, you know, you may face some criticism, I think people you work with um, will come out on the other end. And, and I think they respect, I think by and large people respect um, principles and values, and especially if they're founded on, on certain um, religious kind of um, understandings or perspectives. So I think it's really important to do that. And, and obviously if we're, uh, I, I firmly believe that if we are trying to do the right thing and we don't always do the right thing, right? Like, you know, I, I, I can think of many, many times where I may not have done the right thing. Um, but when we try to um, do the right thing, I think, you know, more than anything else, we also have Allah on our side. And that I think, you know, is, 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 uh, is the most reassuring aspect of it. Yeah, I think that's very valuable advice. Um, you're listening live to the Umenta talk show where we're currently chatting with Samir Ladadinani, who is Associate Director of the Bioethics Program at Columbia University. And we chatted with Samar Jaffa in the previous half hour on her role as an elementary school teacher. If you have any questions for us, uh, Salma or Samir, please leave them in the comment section of the YouTube channel and we'll get that uh, to them at the end of the show. Um, Samir, I have a couple more questions for you. Sure. Um, what's the best thing about your job? The best thing about my job, I think is, I would say that it's the ability to really interact with, with students. I really, really, enjoy that i enjoy the the level of interaction i think it's refreshing uh i think i think there is this part of me that uh, that sees like when i earlier when i was saying about you know careers and job perhaps getting you know it's easy for things to get stale i i think that you know seeing the spark in someone's you know uh or, or seeing like a spark in an interest that someone might have i think it's really reaffirming and reassuring and i think i think that really is um refreshing for me personally. I think the other aspect that I really um, enjoy and I think is is the best, uh, is one of the best kind of aspects of what the field that I'm in um, is that these issues that we're discussing, I think they're critically important, um, not just in societal terms, but I think in religious terms. I think we're confronting issues that um, we don't necessarily have clear answers about. And I think it highlights uh, a really dynamic kind of uh, and evolving discourse that's happening in our religious jurisprudence as well. And I think that's a testament to, to, to the contemporary nature of our religion as well, that Islam has this ability to respond. It's elastic, right? It has this ability to respond to even the most um, cutting edge contemporary issues um, by approaching a spirit of you know, the law's approach where we look at what does Islamic law or how does our jurisprudence approach these issues, even though these issues did not ex ex exist at the time, you know, when Islam, when the Prophet, uh, when, when the Prophet was here, how do we kind of infuse that spirit um, into, into what we're um, experiencing today? And seeing that and seeing that kind of evolution, um, I think is really one of the best parts of what, uh, what I'm seeing. Um, in, in my, my career um, in the field of bioethics. And so I think that's really, really, uh, uh, it just is a testament to, to, to the elasticity and, and, and uh, the relevance of our religion as well. Yeah, yeah and, and, I, and I think that's a great point. Um, going back to uh, your 
profession as a lawyer and also as a, your current role, were there any coursework that you had to take in order to get to where you are and any additional coursework you took that may have helped you to, uh, to get to this point? Yeah, so I took, uh, for, for in the United States, you know, the traditional kind of trajectory or the traditional path um, to become a lawyer is you do the four years undergraduate degree and then a three-year law school. So it's a Juris Doctorate um, and uh, that's three-year law degree. Um, subsequent to that, um, you are, you take the bar exam um, and once you pass the bar, you're proficient, you're deemed proficient rather, uh, to practice law in any area. But obviously that requires some experience. And that's why I think it's really important for students um, to get internships, to get experience, even, even if they know, okay, I want to be a lawyer. Well, what kind of lawyer do you want to be? Get experience in different areas of the law because the law is so diverse. It, 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 it is, you, can, you can practice law in any area. So what areas are you interested in? I had a keen interest in international human rights. Um, and so I kind of sought out interest in that and and um, and then you know generally international law as well and so kind of identify the areas that you're interested in get some experience in that and uh, with that experience and if you know once you finish law school or once a student finishes law school they can then kind of you know go into a specific niche a specific specialty of the law and practice in that area for me i also then subsequently got the bioethics um, background because i felt i had pigeonholed myself a little bit um having worked in corporate law for a bunch of years uh, i really had I didn't have any experience much uh, or much experience rather outside of that and some um, human rights experience so i needed to kind of diversify my portfolio a little bit and the ms the, the masters in bioethics that i did helped me do that and uh, and kind of expand my breadth so that I could use my law degree um, in a different way. Um, and going back to Haskell College once again, what's one thing about your profession you wish somebody had told you earlier that you now know? Someone, so what is something someone would have told me earlier that I now know? Right, that would have helped you in your career. I think there's there's a couple of things I would say. One is do what you want to do. You're going to have a lot of people that will give you advice and very well-intentioned advice. Do you, each of us, I think, knows internally what we are built for, right? What we are made for and what we, what is kind of what makes us tick, what makes us get up in the morning, right? And sometimes we second guess that, you know, so I would say one, you know, know yourself, know what your interests are. And two, don't second guess those interests. I think that's really, really important because I think sometimes, you know, doubt or um, you know, questions about your own level abilities or confidence, you know, can really, really um, divert a person. And so I think it's really, really important to be kind of firm if you know what you want to do, uh, and kind of don't let your own self derail you from that either. Uh, and I think, I think ultimately, I would just end with saying that um, it's really important, I think, to do good, right? Whatever we do, whatever aspect we're in, whatever profession, whatever career, you know, you may, anyone may decide to go in. I think that it is essential that we kind of push the needle in a positive direction, right? Not just for us or for our immediate families, but, you know, in, in small incremental ways for our society as well. And, and things that, you know, hopefully will then 
you know, cause cause uh, a rippling effect, right, over time. And uh, and we, we only live for, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years. Um, I think it's really, really important that whatever we do, there has to be an aspect of goodness in that, or trying to at least do, move, move ourselves and our society in some type of positive trajectory. I think that's really important. And I think it's also our religious responsibility to do that, um, given the given the kind of resources that we've been blessed with. I think that's very valuable advice uh, to have as well. Um, so I have a question for both uh, Salma and Samir. So Salma, are you still there? Yep, I'm still here. Okay, so a question for both of you and uh, Salma can go first. So what else besides your academics, um, like for example, sport, public speaking, or other types of activities really help you um, and would you would suggest as being really valuable for students going into your profession? Uh, did you ask me to go first? Yeah, yeah sure. All right. Um, I would say um, uh, find a, to find, well, I mean, I, I've stressed a lot about, you know, keeping your learning going and, um, and making sure that you are always learning new things and, and, um, immersing yourself in trying to keep things as current as possible so i would say definitely trying to keep on top of things in in that respect but i think also finding people that are aligned with you with similar values with similar um goals it's, it's good to have um one person or a group of people that is you know that you can rely on when when you do have struggles or when you have um, questions or you need some motivation or someone to celebrate with when things are going well. So I know for myself, I, I do have people who are also in the same field and it's, it's nice to have those people to rely on when I, when I need it or to talk about when, when a, a something's not working in my classroom. So I would say definitely those two things would be my, my go-tos. Okay. And Samir? Yeah, and I would just say I think I think those are great points, and I, I agree I agree with them as well. I think it's also important to to do something that's unrelated. I think sometimes you know having a hobby that is outside of what you're you know spending eight hours a day doing, or having uh, you know a, an activity, or being involved in a sport, um, doing something that is actually unrelated, I think is actually very good for your career because I think it gives you a mental break. I think it takes you away, and you can reapproach the next day or the next hour. Uh, with kind of a fresh eye. So I think that's also very, very important to do. I think that's, that's really uh, good advice for our, our youth. Um, so at this time, I would like to thank both of you for uh, really inspiring our next generation. And thank you for dedicating about an hour of your valuable time on a Saturday. No, thank, thank you very much, Jawad, and, and thank you so much as well. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. If you have any other questions for our panelists, you may reach out to them on our online platform at umojaoutreach.org slash unleash the future slash groups, or just visit the Umento website and hit the link for online platform. Be sure to tune in next Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time to listen to exciting and inspiring stories from another panel of speakers. Thank you for listening to today's panel on YouTube Live. You can always catch up on our previous shows on SoundCloud or You Mentor Talk Show podcast.